Our passage today is from the Gospel of Luke, the account of um, the birth of Christ. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth, her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning the child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying God and praising God for all they had heard and seen just as they had been told. Amen. Well, I mentioned my grandchildren um, at the beginning of the service. They're the gift that just keeps giving, as you know. And uh, in a timely uh, gift this morning, my four-year-old granddaughter, Ellie, uh, when she woke up and came down into the living room and saw the tree and all of the loot, I mean presents that were there, she burst out in excitement and she looked at her mom and said, it finally happened. You know, because when you're a kid, you, you, you kind of know what Christmas is going to do. But when you don't understand a sense of time, you don't know what Christmas is or when Christmas is actually going to be a thing. And that's a bit of a story of these uh, souls in this account. They were told that there would be a king. They understood that one day, sometime, in some age, they believed that the son of David would come and save us from our sins and triumph over our enemies. They just didn't know when. And as we read here, it finally happened. They, along with my four-year-old, could say it finally happened. But I want us to explore what happened when God came to earth. What do we really learn from this passage about what was happening in the coming of Christ? So we're going to go through a 
Uh, perhaps a litany. Uh, there's more than three points. <laughs> I just want to walk us through. We're not going to spend a lot of time on, on any one of them, but I, I want to give to you this morning um, a survey of the significance of the birth of Christ and then draw some applications for us. And the very, the very first thing that happened when God came is that he schooled kings. This whole passage begins with the most powerful man, at least in the western part of the world, maybe at this time in the whole globe. This is the Caesar of Caesars. He ended the Civil War, started the whole emperor thing, and he got whatever he wanted. And the language of this passage is clear. He sends out a dogma. He sends out a decree. He wants everybody counted so he can tax them. But there's also something more specific here, maybe. Herod the Great is about 65 years old, and he's not in great health. And Caesar probably wants to get a sense of what he has there in that part of the world. Caesar makes the whole world move. Everybody's going back to their town, all the Israelites. And, of course, Joseph is going back to his town, the town of his house, the town of his lineage, the town of his father, David. He's going back to Bethlehem. But... What we really see in the story as it's told in the context of the Bible is that Caesar is um, a puppet of the great king of heaven and earth. The king's heart, Proverbs says, is a stream of water, Proverbs 21, in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it however he wills. And so what we're finding out is that this whole thing, This whole story is in fulfillment of an ancient promise given to the prophet Micah and the promise before to Isaiah and the promise before that to David. goes back um, nearly a thousand years. And this king who one day decides to decree that we should know how many people are going to give him money, this king is really just um, doing the bidding of our father, who is in heaven. And that's the significance of this account of David going back from Nazareth, a place of no account up in the north, down to the south from Galilee to Bethlehem. We're going to look more about why Joseph did that. or Well, of course, we know why he was told to, but we're going to learn about in a moment maybe why he brought his wife. And it maybe wasn't just because she was pregnant. But what I want us to see now is the God in the secret counsel of his will and in the glory of his providence was moving his redemption forward. And he was schooling the kings. Not yet would they know who the real king was, and Caesar never understood that till it was too late for him. But we know. We know that God moves the king's hearts. We know that he's made promises still today. We know that whatever we see with our eyes, whatever we hear with our ears, whatever we watch on the news, whatever jumps up in our feed on Facebook, we know that God came and schooled kings and got his way and his son was born in Bethlehem. And that's the first thing that God does according to the promise of Micah. One of the things that, uh, he's certainly um, a bad person, but Herod seems to me to be one of the only people in the whole accounts 
of the story of the birth of Christ who understood, aside from Mary and Joseph, of course, and some of the inner players, but um, outside of that inner circle, he seems to be the only one who understood the significance of what happened. And he responded with vicious evil, but he grasped the reality that if this king lived, everything would be different because God had come to school us all. He also comes to, uh, in a conspiracy of scandal. As we know from the story of the gospel, God is turning um, the world upside down by choosing um, the rejected stone and um, the broken and the outcast. He's choosing people like the people in this room who maybe in our world we forget that we are the losers Jesus came to save. But it's embedded in this story. I love this line that's easy to swing, uh, to rush by because we were so familiar with the account. They, uh, Joseph went up to uh, his father's house to Bethlehem with Mary who was with child to whom he was betrothed. Now think about that. Not to whom he was married, but the, the whole uh, small caravan, if we can call it that, uh, on the way to Bethlehem is an emblem of the fact that God is turning the world upside down. He's doing something different. And it's just the first light of dawn when we realize that God is going to take the leper and the unclean, and the sinner, and the last, and the least, and he's going to come to earth, and he's going to forgive those who can acknowledge that they have nothing to offer, nothing at all to give to the king. But I call this a conspiracy, because um, there's more than just God involved in this. I told you a little bit I hinted to the significance of Joseph um, bringing Mary along. And I want to give you my sense, my take on that. Here's what we do know. Um, in this census and in Roman censuses generally, um, Joseph could have done this alone. He didn't have to take his super pregnant wife up there. Now, I'm hoping that part of the answer is that Joseph was just a good guy. He didn't want to leave his wife. He wanted to like, be there when the baby was born. That would, that, that's probably true. I'm going to give Joseph was certainly a righteous man. But, but think about this as well. This is the conspiracy part of it. This is what I want us to understand as God's people on this Christmas day. You know, Mary, have you read, have you read, um, have you read Mary's song? This woman knew scripture. The whole thing's filled with scripture. Joseph was a righteous man, and also he was with Mary a lot. So he probably learned a lot of scripture if he didn't know it already. So put the two together, this young couple, very pregnant, about to give birth, and they hear that they've got to go to the town of David. It's hard for me to believe that they didn't smile and remember that God told Israel through the prophet Micah that the Christ would be born there. And so this couple, like all people who believe, 
enter into this conspiracy to scandalize the world by being the least, by acknowledging our sin, by living as if we have no claim on God. And we conspire, as it were, with Joseph and Mary to go to Jerusalem. I am as sure as I can be without a proof text that they smiled all the way up. They probably were like expecting that the inn would have a place for them. That seems reasonable. But, um, but I do think they went there on purpose. So he schools kings. He conspires to scandalize. He brings heaven to earth, too. And this is, of course, this great story of the shepherds out in the field, just minding their own business, doing their stuff, trying to stay awake. That's, that's what I'm like when I work late, like after 8 p.m. Um, and then the angel of the Lord appears, this frightening creation of God who's terrified people all through the Hebrew Scriptures. And, and he is, um, you know, he's not the Renaissance angel you see. And heaven breaks through. And they're terrified at first. Of course, the very thing we want the very thing we long for is a terrifying reality when someone who knows no sin, who's, who's perfectly intact, lives in the presence of God. When any part of that breaks in, of course, all of a sudden, we don't want what we think we wanted. The narrator of, of C.S. Lewis's uh, trilogy, Space Trilogy, in Paralandra, he, uh, he walks into this room and he sees an Eldil, which C.S. Lewis spends three books telling you is not really an angel, but of course it's an angel. You heard it here first. I mean, it's an, it's an analogy for an angel, and um, I, you know maybe well, I'll meet C.S. Lewis and he'll call me out on that. But the point is, he gets there and he says, I, I wish I could quote the whole thing from memory, but the point is he gets in front of and he says this, imagine finally encountering the one thing that is good, something that is truly good, and you no longer wanted good the way you thought you did. And you wish that a blanket or gulf could wrap you up. This is what it means for God to come. And then not only that, as if that wasn't enough, of course, he calms them down with the great early announcement of the, of the gospel, but as if that weren't enough, then this host of angels comes and starts singing. It is impossible not to imagine that these men were freaking out. This is a glorious demonstration. A scene, um, I'm, I'm stretching uh, my memory to, to think of a scene, except maybe the filling of the temple, probably, in the Hebrew scriptures, that um, would match this kind of magnificence. Glory to God in the highest and peace on earth to men on whom his, and women on whom his favor rests. And then God breaks through. That's the whole point of, right, of Christmas, the whole point of the incarnation. Heaven has come to earth, and in this great flash, how long did that last? Probably not very long. And then they were gone in a moment. They, they go back into heaven. And now the world's the way it is for us right now. They were looking maybe at each other. Um, did the sheep notice? I don't know what the sheep were doing. These are fair questions of the text. 
But they were gone. But heaven was. Because that's the whole point. Heaven would be with us in the person of Jesus on earth for another 33 years. Not like the angel of the Lord, except in the transfiguration. Not like the angel choirs, except when God spoke from heaven and said, this is my son who I love with him, I am well pleased. But just like for 30 years, just like one of us, right in our midst. In the same way now, the Holy Spirit is here with us, broken through heaven. God came to school kings to conspire to scandalize and um, to bring heaven to earth. And when heaven comes to earth, well, then we know this. We know that the gospel comes to earth. For the next reason he came was to bring peace to the fearful. We've discussed how terrifying this must have been for those shepherds. Um, the reality of uh, an angel in your presence will change your mood, no doubt. And it's always, it's, it's always the response in Scripture that people are afraid. And, and so he says, don't be afraid. It's language that we'll hear later when Jesus comes back from the grave. Don't be afraid. I bring good news. I bring gospel news. I'm telling you everything is going to be okay. God has come to show favor to his people. And of course, that's our message. That's our hope. That's what, what we're celebrating. But I want us to see that there's a hint in the text that is, um, tells us that they're afraid of more than just angels. What are they doing out there? What do shepherds do? What are we told they, they're doing? It's not a trick question. They're guarding the sheep. And the language in the original kind of doubles down on that. The, the shepherds are out there at night because the world is such that you can't leave your sheep out at night. That everything we have that's precious and valuable needs watching and caring and oversight. Because... The world is broken. The world brings harm. There are thorns now everywhere. And so there's this subtle hint in their daily life that the whole reason they have a job is that wolf are going to eat the sheep. That the lion is not going to lay down with the lamb just yet. And so their fear and our fear is much more significant than just angels. You did not see an angel this morning. But you have fear. You know, Hebrews says that he sent his son to deliver those who their whole life were held captive to the fear of death. I don't know about up here, but I know zero people in Seattle, in my neighborhood, that are afraid of dying. Or are they? They're afraid of feeling shame. They're afraid of feeling guilt. They're afraid of not being significant. They're afraid of not having enough money. They don't think of fear of death, but they are afraid of the valley of shadow of death. And so am I. I'm old enough to look back on 30, over 30 years of ministry, and um, 
You know, I, I think sometimes about what, just what happened with that? What, what's the result of that? I, the same with our kids, the same with everything. But, but God came, the gospel came to tell us that God's favor will cover all the wolves that devour our sheep, all the fears that get in the way of our love for one another, the pride that keeps us from humbling ourselves before one another, that God came, that God came to tell us the best unbiblical or non-biblical summary of the gospel is it's going to be okay. Jesus came, he died, he rose. You're going to be okay. One more, one more um, thing we learned about why he came. Uh, and then we'll talk about what it means to us that he came and how we can live today. Let's just focus on today. He came to make outcasts his courtiers. So, I've been in the airport, two airports where Air Force One landed. Two different presidents. And the first time I was in Chicago when it was George Bush the Greater. And uh, we were like neck to we're next in line and then we're there for like a half an hour. And he goes, he goes and he goes, sorry about that folks. It turns out that, that uh, when the president is here, he's always next in line. And I looked out, I looked out at my window and four black SUVs flew down the runway at least 100 miles an hour. And then they flew back and President Bush was driving. That's how, that's how Caesar and presidents show up. But, and that's who gets to be in their plane with them and watch over them. But think about this scene. You, you might remember from better preachers than me or Sunday schools that shepherds uh, were, they were not well-respected. That was not a well-respected profession. Nobody says, I want my son to grow up to be a, a shepherd. Except maybe a shepherd. <laughs> they, they couldn't testify. They were, but yet God goes to them. And then there's, let, let's continue. Then, then he's, visited a young woman who's not married. And then think about the whole, think about the whole inversion of this passage in the art of Luke's narrative. Starts with Caesar. Then it goes to a guy named Quirinius. And then it's just going to flow down to the son of David and Mary. And then it's shepherds. Like the whole passage is telling us that if you want in on this king's court, you better not be a big deal. And you better not be a big deal. You and I, we need to give up every claim we have to wit, intelligence, righteousness, significance, respect. God wants those things for us in his grace. But if you want to be in this king's court, you got to line up behind the shepherds. You got to let the shepherds go first. And so do I. So what what now? What for us? Just just a few things I want us to remember. The first thing is that when God comes to the world, we've seen what he's doing. I want to know that it's 
when he comes, we run. The shepherds made haste. You know, uh, little drummer boy, which I love that. I love the I love the little drummer boy. Um, but you know that the shepherds with the stop action motion, see how long it takes them to get, you know, to Bethlehem. That's not how it was, man. These guys were booking it. It's only thirty minutes. Go watch that, and you go, oh, that's what he was talking about. So, so how much haste do you make to find your Christ? How much? Do you come to him? Well, listen. When you come, the next thing that you do is you gaze. Run to Christ and gaze at him. Your, um, your calling as a Christian is to meditate on the glory of Christ and let it impact the way you live. And that's what they did. They came and watched how do you do that? You watch his people. Yes, his people. These people right here. He died for people like this, especially for the people that irritate you. He died for them on purpose so that they could irritate you. And you could be reminded that he died for you so that you could irritate somebody else and you could all learn to love one another. His word and his sacraments. Run to him, meditate on him, and then finally offer the liturgy of Emmanuel. This is a whole sermon, and I'm not going to turn into that. We're, we're, uh, we're already long on a Christmas sermon. But um, Listen to the rhythm of what happens here, and you'll see the whole rhythm of the liturgy of the church and the life of the Christian. They come. They run. They come. They see, right? And what do they do? They declare the message that has been given to them. We saw angels. They said it's good news. They said the son of David is born. They told people, remember, that already knew this, okay? But they still declared it. And the people that heard it, and surely by now there were people that um, had gathered around this scene that weren't in the, out with the sheep and weren't in the manger, and when they heard it, the next thing we do after we tell one another is they wonder, they marvel at it. You and I, in all these years, if we follow Christ, and I'm not assuming everyone here follows him, but if you do, and I hope you will, 20 years from now, you might lose the wonder and the marvel, the magnificence, the unthinkable, unimaginable humility and kindness and power that's exhibited in the coming of Jesus. Or marvel at it. And then treasure it. And then ponder it. You see how it starts? We, this is the liturgy of Emmanuel. We tell one another. We let it move us. It moves us and we ponder its significance for us and for the world. And then where does it end? Well, they worship forever. And the shepherds return glorifying God and praising God for all they had heard and seen. Run to him. Gaze at him. Tell one another of him. Marvel. Cherish. Ponder and praise. 
That's what your day should be filled with. That's what I hope mine will be filled with, and noise and mess. But I want to just read one thing, then we're done. Thank you for your patience. I want to read, because um, I want to revisit how much um, Caesar got schooled by this little baby. This is from 27 AD. You'll recognize this language, although you've probably never heard it ascribed to the one that this is about. This was a decree, a formal decree from Rome. Whereas the providence which has regulated our whole existence has brought our life to the climax of perfection in giving us the Emperor Augustus, who being sent to us and our descendants as Savior, has put an end to war and set all things in order, and whereas having become God manifest, Caesar has fulfilled all the hopes of earlier times, the birthday of the god Augustus has been for the whole world the beginning of good news. What a chump. What, but there's a little chump in all of us that think this place is really about us. God came to school kings and also pastors and also church members and also everyone else. There is a king. He has come. It is not us. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, ask in your mercy that you will please assure us and convince us of these things. We, we will. We will forget them. Remind us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.